Well, good evening. Uh, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, um, we're continuing this series in Judges. And as we get to Judges 9 tonight, we've actually got a break in the cycle. We've been seeing this cycle, this spiral continue downward of uh, the people sinning, God showing retribution and sending those that oppress them. They finally turn in repentance. He sends a judge to save them. And the last one, of course, was Gideon saving them from the Midianites. But as we get to Judges 9, there's like this break in the cycle and we have a new problem. So uh, we're really going to focus on leadership and judgment tonight are the big themes. I've called it the enemy within uh, as we think about Abimelech, this character in chapter 9. So let me pray for us, ask that God will help us as we um, come to his word and think about this complex period. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We see in it, uh, certainly in Judges, some great violence at time, indeed chaos as things just seem out of control and yet we realize you are the sovereign Lord and that through these things uh, you will direct your people and indeed you challenge us today even still for your word is living and active and we pray that as we reflect on these events from so long ago that you might help us to hear the challenge for ourselves today and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm guessing some of you, like me, are a, a theme, um, a fan of the movie trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, and it has some big themes in that, especially in the final one, The Return of the King. Uh, that was the end of the series where it reaches its climax, where uh, the Dark Lord Sauron is about to attack the city of Gondor. Um, the rebel uh, forces that he's putting together seem so overwhelming, and the small group fellowship of the ring is trying to hold things together and defend Gondor so Gandalf the wizard rides with Pippin they go to Minas Tirith to try and shore up support they're trying to speak to this King Theoden and ask him to send troops to support them in this final last ditch battle but they meet opposition when they get to the city there's a steward of the city Denethor who is a pseudo king they are the line who for centuries have looked after the city of Gondor while the true awaited king returns. And so they've got used to the kingly power, but he's fearful of losing it, of all that he's had as he sees the battle approaching. Rather than facing things with strength, he is fearful of Lord Sauron. He's giving up. He even decides in the end that he'll cremate himself alive along with his son that's just come back from a failed battle, um, who is un now unconscious. Now, I've given you all those details only if you're a Lord of the Rings fan. Um, but if you don't, if you know nothing about this, let me just say this simple summary. Within the complex plot of Lord of the Rings is this simple, repeated idea uh, that there is a true king, but that some usurper is on the throne. Somebody who is not deserving of the rule is in charge, but they actually become a weak imposter in the end. They become the enemy that is within the city leading them astray. And that theme of the wrong person being in charge is a theme that we see come out really strongly in Judges 9 as this character Abimelech crowns himself king. He is the son of Gideon, the last judge. He's one of 71 sons that Gideon has. But he is not the person that God wants in charge. Indeed, God hasn't even allowed a king yet to be given to his people but he takes on this role himself. Following Gideon's death, Abimelech takes an opportunity to seize power 
And he wants to rule over the Israelites and the Shechemites. And they forget God at this point. They've turned away from their worship of God that had been returned under Gideon. And now they're simply going to turn back to worshipping Baal. They go back to the idolatry that's dominated before Gideon's time. And so it brings us to the first point that I want us to consider tonight. And that is, there is no legacy for Gideon. Nothing left for Gideon. Have a look again at Judges 9 verses 1 to 6. This scary opening to this chapter. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, that is another name for Gideon, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and he said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you or just one man? Remember, I'm your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless adventurers who became his followers. He went to his father's house in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son, escaped by hiding. Then all of the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. It's a pretty gory opening to this chapter. And I think the immediate question that comes to our mind is, who are these people from Shechem? What is all of this about? We first read about Shechem way back in Genesis chapter 12. When Abraham arrives in the promised land, the first place he stops after traveling through the land is at the town of Shechem. There's a great tree there, the tree of Mora. It was a high place of pagan worship, idolatry to Baal. And yet at that very place, he stops and God gives him a reinforcement of the covenant promises that he's already given to Abraham. At this pagan site, God speaks to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to make for you a great people. And so at this very site also, in the years that followed, Uh, would be important. In Joshua 24, after Joshua had led the people into the promised land, had taken much of Canaan, he's about to die and he's worried that the people will return to the idolatry that we see in Judges. And so he gathers all the people together and he gathers them at Shechem, at the same great tree in Morah, and renews the covenant and says, you have to stand with God. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What about you? And so at this same site we see here tonight, the Shechemites, they're a bunch of Canaanites. They were not driven out of the land during the time of Joshua. They were going to be a snare to Israel's people, and they certainly are in this chapter. They come together behind this Abimelech, who is the son of Gideon, but his mother is Gideon's concubine, a woman from Shechem. He's part Israelite, part Shechemite. And so he goes to his mother's hometown of Shechem, and he says, how about it? Gideon's got 70 sons plus me. How about we just have one ruler and I'll be it. I'm your blood. And they back him. And so he takes money that they have collected from their Baal temple. He hires these thugs and he goes and kills all of his brothers. Goes back to his father's hometown and dispatches the whole lot. Bar one, the youngest Jotham. Well, I think all of this it's an understatement to say, is provocative. In one fell swoop, he has removed the complete physical legacy of Gideon, bar one son. 
But it's got to be said that the spiritual legacy of Gideon had already been wiped out even before this began. And Gideon himself had sown the seeds of it. We saw this over the last couple of weeks, particularly last week, that although Gideon had been a leader who was very slow and reluctant to begin with, but God had used to do great things in defeating the Midianites, that when everything settled and he went back to his hometown, he creates this ephod out of gold, and it becomes, it may as well have been another idol of Baal, and the people came to his town to worship this gold ephod. It was a breastplate they stuck on priests. And the whole country starts going astray even before Gideon is buried. But after his death, as we heard at the end of chapter 33, as Eric read, immediately upon Gideon's death, they've gone back to idol worship. No spiritual legacy. Now there's no physical legacy bar one son. And this usurper, Abimelech, has taken control. He's crowned himself king. And there's very little in the first half of this chapter about God, very little mention of God. We begin to think by partway through, is God aware that this is happening? Is he just ignoring this? Surely he's going to act a judge. Why is this guy getting away with all this? But God never lives these people without a voice of reason, without someone who's going to speak the truth and call out sin. And in this case, it was the surviving son, Jotham. You might have thought he'd just flee for the hills, but he's a pretty courageous guy. And uh, we heard that parable that he gave them about the four different trees. But let me take you to the climax in verses 16 to 20, where he says to them, um, there's a heavy irony here, so forgive me if I read it that way. Now, if you have acted honorably and in good faith when you made Abimelech king, and if you've been fair to Jeroboam and his family, and if you've treated him as he deserves, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out of Abimelech and consume you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out of you, citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. He's effectively cursing the two parties that have uh, construed to work together to see all his brothers assassinated. He makes this outburst from a nearby mountaintop, Mount Gerizim, so he's a safe distance. This is just after the crowning ceremony. Can you imagine this? Um, this is a Biblec. He's wiped out all his brothers. There he is. He's gathered all the Shechemites. He's getting himself crowned. He's under the great tree saying, I'm in charge. And then there's this voice from the mountaintop, and they turn around to hear the one that wasn't killed, cursing them for their actions. For the first time in Judges, the problem is not so much a Canaanite tribe attacking Israel, Israel like the Midianites. Suddenly, we have an own goal. This is the enemy within. This is somebody claiming to be king over Israel and Shechem. Somebody who was the son of the last judge, the last hero of the nation. And yet he's leading them astray, albeit that he's half Israelite, half Canaanite. You know, as the centuries follow after this, and God does allow Israel to have a king, what becomes very clear and is said over and over and over again is that the king must be a shepherd of his people. He's likened to a shepherd, somebody who will care for God's people, look after them, feed them, teach them, protect them. Indeed, there are huge warnings in the Old Testament if that's not happening. When you get to Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel says, Woe to the shepherds of the nation who have failed them by that time. He says, Weren't you made to feed and protect the people, 
to heal those that are broken, to bring back the strays, and yet you've just acted in self-interest. God is going to judge you. The category of the false shepherd, it's a really clear one. And if anyone ever perfectly fitted in the Old Testament, Abimelech's got to be close. And how different is this guy to the good shepherd that was promised? In Ezekiel 34, in that same passage I just referred to, one that is coming who will be the good shepherd is foretold. And when Jesus arrives, he says in John 10, verses 11 and 12, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. What's all this got to do with you and I today? Well, I think as we apply this first section, the first lesson I've got for you tonight from this passage is we must be on guard against false shepherds. We must be on guard against false shepherds. Abimelech wanted to be king, a shepherd of his mother's people and Israel too, if they would have him, but he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was a terrible, ghastly figure. And Paul would later say to some of the leaders of the church in Ephesus on this very point, be so careful. Acts 20, verses 28 to 31. Notice on the screen behind me, Paul writes, keep watch, speaking to the leaders of this church in Turkey, modern day Turkey, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from among your own number, men will arise and distort the truth and in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. To the task of any leader who has responsibility for another person, whatever the ministry area, is a serious one. When the task is summarized by Paul here in verse 28, keep watch. Keep watch against the challenges. What are the challenges? Well, he says the challenge is a distortion of the truth. That is that people will be moved away from the gospel. They'll stop trusting in Jesus and they'll just follow this person. And the challenge comes from those who might come from outside into the church, but it also can grow up within the church, Paul says. The challenge is without and within. In the face of such challenges, Paul reiterates in verse 31 that you have to be on guard. You're always watching for marauding wolves like a shepherd would be. Now, maybe you think, oh, look, you know, that I can only think of extreme examples. Aren't they the kind of things that just happen out there? Maybe in America where everything seems to happen. We think of those great examples in the 1980s. Great, I say, uh, unfortunately, uh, shocking examples of televangelists that fell by the wayside. One of the most famous examples was the high-profile American pastor and televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. And by 1980s, uh, his Baton Rouge complex housed what he called the World Ministry Center. He had built a 7,500-seat um, uh, worship center. He had a Bible college. He had a host of buildings. He was running uh, syndicated radio and television broadcasts. Swaggart's TV programs were shown into 195 countries was producing $150 million a year. He was one of the leading Assembly of God pastors. He disciplined other pastors who had gone astray. 
And then he was caught in sexual sin, the same thing that he had disciplined others for. Huge scandal where he was caught with the prostitute. He eventually apologized on his TV program, but only after he was forced to. And it was only after she went on TV that the leadership of his denomination said, actually, we think we need to remove you. Their initial decision was, we'll just suspend you from preaching for three months. Well, Swaggart discontinued. Even after they removed him from their church denomination, he continued independently. Mind you, most of the students had left his Bible college. Uh, He had to put off some of his building projects. He'd sold his private jet. But he began to claw his way back. He blamed demons for his lapses. He said they'd now been cast out of him over the phone by an evangelist. And by October of 1991, Swaggart was still in the top five uh, Christian broadcast in America. Unbelievable. Until he was caught a second time. (laughs) And those that had continued to stand by him walked away at that point. And all of this was gleefully covered in the press. He made the front cover of Time magazine. He did untold damage to the gospel. 195 countries. I think it's Channel 54 or something like that in Australia is showing repeats of his TV services even now. It's amazing. But it doesn't have to be an extreme example out there. It can be right here. See, how does that apply to you and I? Well, firstly, you should always be checking everything that's taught from the front in God's Word, the Bible. Don't believe anything because Joel or Mark or I say it, but check it with God's Word. But all of us, too, should be keeping a close account of ourselves. You know, if you're a Bible study leader here, you run a home group, you're a co-leader in the home group, you're a youth leader, you're a Sunday school teacher, you're part of the 6 p.m. planning committee, there could be 101 ways in which you have some responsibility over other believers. If God has placed you in any role of care for others, Paul would want to say, watch your walk with the Lord closely. Watch closely. Not only yourself, but watch for these marauding wolves that would come in. Ask yourself, am I continuing to hold to the gospel? Am I continuing to live out the gospel each day in my life? Am I watching for those who might be seeking to lead people astray? They're saying, oh, you don't need to worry about this life of suffering, following Jesus, the suffering servant. God just wants to give you the good life. Don't worry about following these rules and being obedient to him. You can say you're a follower of Jesus and do these other things. Let me encourage you that we need to be prayerful about ourselves, but about any of our leaders. Say you're a member of a home group. Do you pray for the person who's leading your home group? You should. There are always going to be threats from without and from within. And Abimelech is a great warning, as there are many others too in God's word, that the wrong person can be placed in a position of authority and can do great damage. And that brings me to a second point. Point two, God's judgment falls. God's judgment falls. You know, after you read this horrendous account of Abimelech, you you are left worrying. (laughs) Is God going to right these wrongs? And 69 people killed in cold blood, a whole nation taken full length into Baal worship. 
thugs employed to kill people. Was Jotham just hopeful in pronouncing this curse or is God going to actually act to right these wrongs and prove that his words are actually prophetic? Have a look at verses 22 to 24 with me. After Abimelech had governed Israel three years, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem who acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. There's suddenly a little footnote here, as it were, and then it happens again at the end of the chapter in verses 56 and 57 where we suddenly hear, what is God thinking about this mess? We're told judgment's going to fall on both parties. But it's not the way we would do it. God uses some really interesting methods as we see the second half of the chapter unfold. It starts off with the people of Shechem going against Abimelech. And how do they do that? Well, they just hire some more thugs and they go and um, set up sort of roadblocks anywhere around the town of Shechem. Anybody trying to pass through the territory is mugged and all their goods taken off them. How does that hurt Abimelech? Well, what kind of king can't even ensure safe transit through his territory? Is this Abimelech the king's control? And yet this is happening in his province? Abimelech's uh, fame got reduced quite quickly through this. When Abimelech happened, realized what was happening, he started getting worried. Further, there was a, a, an outside group that came into the town of Shechem and tried to take over. They had a leader whose name was Gaal. And they all got drunk at some harvest party at that point. And Gaal made some big claims. Who's this Abimelech? I'll take him on. Let's wipe him out. I'll take control. Make me in charge of this place. Well, thankfully, I guess for Abimelech, one of his henchmen was listening to that raving uh, response. And he sent word privately that night. Hey, I think you better get ready. We've got trouble here. You're going to lose control of your town. And by the morning, Abimelech was in place. He started walking down the hill towards Shechem at first light with his army in three groups ready to attack. Gaal, who's, you can imagine, just waking up, he's got his morning coffee and his donut, and he's standing at the city gates. What are all these people coming down? And there is the henchman beside him of um, Abimelech. His name's Zebel, and he's playing dumb. I don't know what these people are. I can't see anything. Sure, they're not trees up there. I can't see them. Gaal's like, no, no, they're, they're people. That's an army coming. And eventually Zebel says, well, look, you had some real strong words last night. Why don't you go and prove it now? Get out your army. Let's attack. Here comes Abimelech, ready to show what you're made of. Well, they go out. Abimelech has a big win. Gaal is completely smashed. But Abimelech's not happy with that. The town has turned against him. The people are silly enough to think that business as usual will start the next day because Gaal and his followers have been ousted. So they go out to farm. As they go out to farm, Abimelech surrounds all the men who have left the city to farm. He rounds them up and kills them, slaughters them in battle, and then goes into the city and just raises the place. The leadership of the city see what's happening. They escape to a tower they think will be safe here. And Abimelech goes to the tower and he lights it up. And the people are burned to death in the tower. One nil to Abimelech. But... God hasn't finished with Abimelech. That's only one side of the story. He's not happy with what's happened. He goes to the next town of Thebes who have supported 
Shechem and they're turning against him. He does the same again, attacks all the people. They go to their stronghold. And he thinks, well, it worked the first time. Let's try it again. And he goes to burn the place. And as he gets close to it, a woman from above in the tower drops a millstone straight on to the head of Abimelech. Abimelech is knocked down, is about to die. He doesn't want the ignominy of being killed this way. And he asks his servant to run him through so that the morning times won't say he was killed by a woman. It's a pathetic end to Abimelech, the tough guy, the one who had cowardly killed 60, uh, 69 of his brothers. God has seen to it that both Abimelech and Shechem are destroyed. Indeed, as Jotham had said, they destroyed each other. God judged, just not the way you and I might have imagined, perhaps. Well, How does any of that relate to us? You probably don't plan to burn any villages or have a millstone dropped on you tomorrow. I think the second lesson we can learn from this passage is this. We reap what we sow. We will reap what we sow, just as Abimelech did. Let me take you to Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. The Apostle Paul again says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Here's this principle, this spiritual law of sowing and reaping. You can't sow badly and expect a good harvest. You can't sow barley and harvest oats. You can't sow to the sinful nature and expect a harvest of spiritual blessing. God is not mocked. God is not fooled. Our Creator cannot be treated with contempt. Here was Abimelech, the destroyer of God's people. He would take them away to idol worship. He would kill off their future leaders. God's not going to allow His people to be taken away. He will see to it that a remnant continues. We're self-deceived if we think we can sow seeds to the flesh and not reap destruction. And the same applies to us today. There's a process of moral decay. Now, the word here for destruction is actually corruption. Moral decay will set in until we finally perish. And there's this stark contrast. There's two roads, isn't there? There's the outcome of those who sow to please the sinful nature and those who sow to please the spirit. One leads to corruption, the other to eternal life. So what I want to say to you tonight is that every decision, every moment of our lives is important because they echo into eternity. There are eternal consequences for our actions in this life. I don't know if you've heard of Lord Byron. If you're a, uh, a student of literature or English, you may have heard of him, a British poet, one of the most famous leading figure of Romanticism. Uh, Byron's poems are still widely read today in English faculties. When we two parted, so we'll go no more roving. Don Juan is regarded as one of the greatest European poets. But actually, you can have a, a bad impression or a, an untrue impression of his life if that's all you knew about him. His fame actually rests not so much on his writings, but on his life. He was somebody that just wanted to pursue his sinful nature to the full. He said, I'm just going to do everything I want to do in this life and I don't care what happens or who gets hurt. 
He was known, renowned for his extravagant living, his numerous love affairs, his debts, his marital exploits, a short parliamentary career as a lord in the British Parliament. He even served as a leader of a revolutionary group in Italy and defeated an Austrian army. He then went to fight the Ottoman army as part of the Greeks. Now, the Greek nation still honours him as a hero, a national hero of Greece, though he came from Britain. And while he was in Greece, he eventually died of fever. He spent this short life, mad search for pleasure. He lived large, as they say. He could use all his wealth and position as a baron in England to do it. But he died at the age of 37. He said just before he died this, The thorns I have reaped are of the tree I planted. They have torn me and I bleed. I should have known what fruit would spring from such a tree. Well, Jotham had already given us the parable about the trees. Of all the trees that he talked about in his parable, the only one you would not appoint as the king is the bramble bush, the thorn bush. It's good for nothing but burning. And yet the Israelites appointed him. Well, eternal life commences as we receive the Spirit. But this abundant life of eternal life will only be fully realized in Christ's presence. But if we spend this life sowing the unbridled sinful nature, we just simply reap self-destruction. There does come a day where God will judge. And the question is, what are we going to do as we think towards that great day in the future? If you're a believer here tonight, placed your faith in Jesus, I'm sure that you're trying to live for him as your king. And maybe you're here tonight and you're not sure where you stand. In fact, you've just been trying to pursue your road. And perhaps you think it's more exciting that it, there are no consequences at the end of the road. And indeed, you're going to get everything out of this life. You're going to suck the marrow out of this life. The story of Lord Byron, the story of one person after another down through the centuries, is that it doesn't often end well even in this life. But the promise is that in the life to come, God will bring account. If an account is not held now, it will be on that final day of judgment. And eternal consequences flow. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Whether believer or unbeliever, now, for Paul, he had no fear of condemnation. He knew that he was saved by grace. But what we might say he feared is being evaluated and being found to not be a faithful servant or the faithful servant that he may have been for the Lord Jesus. To have got to the end of his life and found that he didn't invest his time, his energy, his money, his all in serving the Lord, but rather just pursued a life of idleness or indifference or self-interest and that is the question that lies before us day after day let me finish with this story that illustrates the seriousness with which we need to take our following of jesus richard wormbrand is a famous romanian pastor um, but for many years he was tortured by the communists in the Cold War in Eastern Europe following World War II, he was taken, like many, many thousands of others, imprisoned for his faith, 
and literally tortured day after day that he might recant. Somehow he survived, went on to be a pastor, and he spoke around Europe following that time, particularly through the 1970s and 80s. He went to one large gathering in Norway where they were seeking to raise money for Bibles, Bibles to the Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe that had been so closed in under communism and now had freedom to hear the good news. And as he shared with this crowd, he said to them, if you're going to give tonight, please only do so if you're committed to following Jesus. He says, I want you to understand that if you give money to the giving of Bibles to people in these areas, some of whom are still being persecuted, that you'll be giving a Bible to people who will believe this is truly the Word of God. And they'll live by it. They'll be imprisoned, perhaps, tortured. Perhaps some will die. He shared the story of Nikolai Mara, a Russian, who eventually in jail had his tongue cut out and his eyes gouged out, but refused to recant. He said, well, you realize as you give to this work that there'll be more Nikolai Maras in the world. So please forego giving if you are not living by this same word that you would see them have. I ask you this day, he said, whether you have a close walk, an intimate walk with the Lord Jesus, whether you truly follow this word and live by it, giving your all to him, because... Christ expects nothing less of you. Indeed, you'll give an account on the final day if you've given Bibles to people when you have not taken it seriously yourself. Well, Paul was somebody sold out for Jesus too. He was somebody who could say, look, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He took the words of these passages very seriously as he reflected on them as we have in his letters. And the same charge applies to us today. We need to be very careful about taking on roles of leadership. We need to watch our own walk closely, watch the walk of those around us. We might protect God's flock from marauding wolves. We need to realize that every person will give an account, that there are two paths. One will reap destruction, one eternal life. And that all people, believer and unbeliever, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ and on that day have to give an account. And in that light, we must live. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that through the story of Abimelech, you make it clear that you absolutely are concerned for right and wrong. Indeed, you will judge, for you are a holy God, and your perfect righteousness will be seen, either in salvation or indeed in judgment. Lord, help us to see that we are no different, that we, day by day, have decisions before us, whether to turn aside to self-interest, to follow our own causes, or to live truly for you at whatever cost that might produce. Lord, help us to be those who follow our Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, the one who laid down his life for us. For this alone should motivate us to live for him as our Lord and Savior. We pray this in his name.
What a challenge. Um, are we watching our walks closely? Are we, um, yeah, giving our spiritual lives the attention and gravity um, that they require?